Greetings, everybody. It's great to be with you through this venue today. My name is Dan McDonald. I'm one of the pastors here at Highland. And my primary area of responsibility has been the Weston campus over the past number of years. And it's really a privilege to connect with you today in this way. Please join me as we pray for our time together. Father in heaven, thank you that we have this time to meet together. I want to ask, first of all, that you would incline our hearts toward your testimonies and not toward selfish gain. Please open our eyes to see amazing things in your word. Please unite our hearts to fear your name. And would you satisfy us today with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. And help me now to speak what is right and true from your word. And what is from your word, would you just penetrate our hearts with it and transform us and help us to know what we need to know and to know it well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a sad account of a pastor, former pastor. And this is a statement he made just a couple of years ago. He said these words, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. And by all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. It's a very sad account because this is a person who was very involved in the Christian faith and now is saying, you know what? I'm done. Jesus isn't really doing it for me anymore. He's not quite what I wanted, maybe not quite what I expected. And the struggle is, when we hear things like this, is we have to be careful that it doesn't shake our faith. It's very easy for that to happen. And my heart goes out to the people in his church as well. But these are things that do happen in our culture. We have people who walk away from the faith. And other things that happen in our culture today include false teaching, things that even creep into the church that seem kind of plausible, but they really are not. They really enable people to be derailed from the faith and shake them ultimately from their faith. Things, for instance, like the prosperity gospel, which really what the prosperity gospel appears to seek to do is is it, it, instead of making Jesus the primary focus, knowing Jesus, the eradication of sin, and coming to, into this relationship with Jesus Christ forever, and knowing him is the primary focus of our lives. That's what we're called to as Christians. But the prosperity gospel tends to be more like leveraging Jesus, leveraging, you know, if I do these things, then God will give me the things that I want now. And that is a travesty, and it is wrong. But many people are led astray by it because it sounds feasible. Like if, if I do these things, God is going to give me what I want. But the focus then becomes the things in this world that I want as opposed to the focus God calls us to, which is to follow Jesus with all of our hearts. But we have these struggles in our culture, in our church cultures today. But... These things are no surprise. There's nothing new about it. Because when John writes his letter, we call it 1 John, to the church in Ephesus, 
when he writes that letter, they're having some of the same things going on. There are people that have been leaving the church. There is false teaching that has been going on. And it may even feel like Satan is winning. But that is not the case. But we see this in John because John writes a couple things about it. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John writes this about those who left the faith. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So it sounds like quite a number of people have left, but John's saying if they were really part of us, they would have stayed. And this isn't new to John. John lived for three years around Jesus very much constantly with the 12 disciples and some others. And included among those 12 disciples that John knew, probably a good friend of John's, was a man named Judas. And Judas was with Jesus for three years, immersed in, in, as a follower of Christ. He saw Jesus heal the sick, raise the dead, make a meal out of five loaves and two fish. He saw amazing things. And, and in the end, Judas was like, mm, no, no. Jesus isn't quite what I want. Jesus is not enough. So John was familiar with people walking away from the faith like Judas did. And it didn't shake him. And he doesn't want it to shake the church. And John's familiar with false teaching. In fact, like we spoke of earlier a couple weeks ago in Pastor Jeff's initial sermon on the First John series, he talked a little bit about Gnosticism. This, this religion that said, you know what, the body and all the material things are evil and the, the goal is finally to be done with them and what's good is spiritual. And the way we attain better and better spirituality is by learning things, knowing things that are maybe kind of hidden. We can come to know those things and it becomes this pursuit of knowledge for the sake of getting knowledge. And that too is a lie all the way back from the beginning. That's a lie from the devil because what do we see in, in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3? How does Satan tempt Eve and Adam? He comes up to them and he says, the reason you, that God doesn't want you to eat of that is because he's holding out on you. He, know, he, he knows that you'll be able to know good and evil. You'll be like him. And that was Satan's temptation. You can know this. You can know something. And, and Eve and Adam were tempted by that and they gave in. To it, and they plunge the world into sin. That's Satan's lie forever. So far, it's just been take this, take this, because God's holding out on you. You need to know something more, and and that's why it can feel like the devil is winning. But John writes his letter to say, no, 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 no. It's not about that. It's about knowing the right things, and John highlights those things today. In fact, we learned a couple of weeks ago from Pastor Jeff when he taught on this passage uh, on the book of 1 John. He said that kind of the heart of 1 John is verse 13 of chapter 5 where John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John's aim is that they would know that they have eternal life. What do we need to know? We need to know that we have eternal life. And there are three ways in, the, in 1 John that John mentions we can know that we have eternal life. 
In chapter 2, verse 3, John writes this. As we think about assurance of our salvation, John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So keeping God's commands, a way to be assured of our faith. Another is 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, where John writes these words. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. How do we know that we are now done with the old way and in Christ? Because we love the brothers. The brothers and sisters in Christ, when we love them and when we keep God's commands, those are two ways that God enables us to grow in the assurance of our faith. And the third thing John mentions is, as we think about how to be assured in our faith, it's this. We need to think correctly about Jesus, about who Jesus is and all that he's done. We need to think correctly about those things. Um, He highlights that in chapter 4, verse 13. John writes this. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So when we think correctly about who Jesus is, he's the one the Spirit testifies to, He's the son of the father, the son of God who came into the world to save the world. We need to think correctly about Jesus. And when we do that, we grow in the assurance of our salvation. This helps to combat the doubts that we can struggle with. In our passage today, which is 1 John chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, is a passage that focuses on this third way of gaining assurance. It helps us to focus on who Jesus truly is. We want to think correctly about Jesus. That's where John goes today. And it's so interesting because John, when he, when he starts this letter, he just goes full bore into the letter. He doesn't even say hello or dear so-and-so. He, there's no greeting. He just, he's got things on his mind and he plunges in. And he goes and he goes and he goes. And he writes phrases and sentences and paragraphs and he packs them with truth. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, in the middle of chapter 2, he changes. And he gives us a little poem. And I kind of picture it like this. I picture it like Mr. Rogers, some of you remember Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Mr. Rogers walks into his room and he hangs up his sweater. And he goes, puts on his slippers And he sits down in his rocking chair. John has been going full bore in this letter. Now all of a sudden, he does a Mr. Rogers. He pauses. And he leans in. And he speaks to the church. It's like a grandfather speaking to grandchildren. People that he loves. People that are dear to him. And this is what he says in this poem. He leans in. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, 
because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And in this short poem, John leans in and he tells us this is what you need to know. This is what you need to know. This is the knowledge you are to pursue. This is what you are to go after. And I love the way he speaks to the church. Now, we have to realize this is a poem. There are metaphors in poems. And, and when he says little children, John's not necessarily just speaking only to the fours, fives, and sixes, you know, year olds. That's not what he's doing. Little children is a term of endearment that John uses for the entire church. Um, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's not just writing that to the kids. He's writing that to the entire church. And it's just a term of endearment that John has. And, and sometimes maybe we think, well, maybe he's writing to people at different levels of spiritual maturity. So maybe it's not only those who have fathered children and only those who are young men are the ones in their teens, 20s, and 30s. Um, maybe we think, well, maybe he's talking about spiritual maturity, that there are some who are babies in the faith, who are young in the faith, like children. There are some who are younger in their faith, but a little further along with a lot of energy. Those are the young men. And maybe those who are old, <laughs> uh, like, I guess I'm getting there. Those are the ones who, those are the fathers in the faith. But, but I don't think John's doing that either. Because the things that John has written in this little poem are things that he writes to the entire church throughout his letter. So I think it's more like this. I think it's like John saying, hey, church, you guys are like children in this way. And, and church, you all are like fathers in this way. This is what fathers do. And church, you all are like young men in this way. This is, this is what young men do. I, I want to take it from that focus this morning. I believe that's where John is going with this. And the other thing we notice is that John does a lot of repetition in these three short verses. And he does that for the sake of emphasis. You know, he's, put, he's pushing the pause button. There's all this stuff swirling around. Hits pause. All right, people. All right, church. All right, loved ones here. This is what we need to know. And it seems like he's saying everything twice. He diverts a little bit from that, but he really uses repetition to, for the sake of emphasis. So as we think about this text, we want to think, first of all, how does John speak to us as children? What, what are children? Children are dependent on their parents, right? As children of God, we are dependent on our Father. And we are to be dependent. So what we need to know as children of God, the very first thing that John mentions in verse 12 is your sins are forgiven for the sake of Jesus' name. Your sins are forgiven. This is glorious. And I don't know. I know some of us can struggle with wondering, are my sins truly forgiven? What about this? What about that? Or I was so bad, there's no way that that, that could be forgiven. But scripture tells us otherwise. Our sins are forgiven. They're gone. God's not going to bring them up. Satan can't even bring them up. Romans 8 says, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Why? Because Jesus, when he came, he died on the cross, and he paid for the sins of every person who places their faith in him. Their sins are forgiven. They're taken care of forever. 
And those are no longer held against us. Our sins are forgiven. That's why we have Psalm 103 verse 12, which says this. As far away as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. They're gone. And in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12, the Lord says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. No more. Sins are forgiven. And the ground for the forgiveness of our sins is Jesus' sake. Our sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake. They're not, they're forgiven based on Jesus' name and reputation. They're not forgiven based on our name and reputation. Because what reputation do I have that merits the forgiveness of my sin? The forgiveness of our sins is based on Jesus' merit, Jesus' name, who Jesus is. And John tells us in chapter 2, Early part of it, he says, he's our advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we have this attorney, Jesus, the righteous one, who says, Father, my righteousness is theirs. I paid for Dan's sin on the cross. It's no longer to be held against him. He's mine. He's advocating for us. He's our advocate. And he is our propitiation according to John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Our propitiation, a propitiation appeases the wrath of an angered one. And God is angry righteously and, and justly so with my sin. And there's two ways to propitiate that anger. One is for me to absorb God's wrath in hell forever as the righteous payment for my sin. And that appeases God's wrath. Or God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus to be our propitiation. Where Jesus steps in front of me. And he absorbs God's wrath on my behalf to the extent that when he goes to the cross and he's forsaken by his father there and he dies for my sin and pays for it all, that there's not one drop of sin left for me. No condemnation left for those who are in Christ. That's who Jesus is. And we are forgiven. Why? Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, for the sake of Jesus' name, not for the sake of our own name. It's amazing news. It's the only way that we could be saved. Another thing that John says to children is this. John says, children, you know the Father. He says that uh, at the end of verse 13. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. And one of my favorite doctrines of Scripture is the fatherhood of God. This is something that Jesus brought into prominence with his disciples. And, and he said, Pastor Jeff preached about it last week in Matthew chapter 6. Your Father knows what you need. Our Father protects us and loves us and, and takes care of us and nurtures us and nourishes us. And I love this story about the fatherhood of God, that we as children are dependent on him. But a story about a five-year-old boy, loved where he lived, loved his school, loved his church, loved his friends, just loved life. And, and his father lost his job. So the father moved the whole family to the other coast and this little boy was angry because he lost everything he loved. It was gone. And he was angry and he was bitter. But as time went on, he got acclimated to his new surroundings, got into a new school, made some new friends, got into a church that he loved, met a gal that he really liked, um, wound up with a career that he liked. And when he was 30 years old, he realized he had a totally different perspective on his suffering than he did when he was five. But as children, oftentimes we get mired in this five-year-old view of our suffering. We don't want it. It's awful. 
God, what is our Father doing to us? You know, he's, he's terrible, you know, we might be tempted to say. But he has, he's wise, and he's good, and he's powerful. And he's going to take us where we really need to go. And we need to trust him. He's our Father. We know the Father. That's what he does. He cares and nourishes and protects us and does always, always, always what is best for his people. And we hang on to that during a time of trouble, during a time of strife in our nation, during a time of a lot of change. Our Father is ruling over everything, and he loves us, and he's got us. So John speaks to children and says, those are some things that you guys hang on to. Your sins are forgiven in Jesus' name, and you know the Father. And John also speaks to the church and says, this is what you need to know, church, as fathers. Okay, you guys are all fathers in this sense. And he writes it twice. Verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. Verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. That's what he says to fathers. You know him who is from the beginning. So what does it mean that we are church fathers? Well, we know Jesus who is from the beginning. The original church fathers, the 12 apostles were like, they were commissioned by Jesus to take this message to the world about the one who is from the beginning. And they have passed it on. And that's what fathers do. They take what is right and good and true and they pass it on. Um, Bouncing back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, just for a second, where we read this. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Deuteronomy 6, 6. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Okay, what do fathers do? They take the truth and they hand it off to others. So as church, as people who are part of Christ's church, we're fathers in that way. We take what we know and we teach about the one who we know who is from the beginning. We know the one who is from the beginning and we teach people about him. And Jesus is the one who's from the beginning. Um, in 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, John starts right out talking about Jesus. And in his gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, John talks about the one who is from the beginning. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14, this word, who was in the beginning with God, this word became flesh, took on flesh, and came and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, you know him. As Christians, we know him who is from the beginning. And that's who he is. He is the son of God. He's, he's the creator. He's God himself, son of God everlasting. And he has come to take care of the sins of the world to dwell among us. So John's like, like father's church, guard that truth carefully and, and hand it off to others. And protect the church from those who are speaking error. Don't, you know, let's stay on track. Let's do that. So John's like, this is what we need to know as fathers. This is our calling, church, as fathers. And then church, you also are young men. It doesn't matter if you're 108 years old. You are a young man. 
And this is what young men in the church need to know. Young men, from verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2 of 1 John. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. In other words, John's not saying you're going to overcome the evil one. He's saying you have overcome the evil one. You have the victory. Through your union with Christ, you have defeated the evil one. And how does that happen? It happens because, first of all, we are kept in Christ. John chapter 10, back to his gospel again. Verses 27 through 30. Jesus says this, and John recorded it. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Why have we overcome the evil one? Because no one can snatch us away from Jesus. And he has conquered Satan. We read in 1 John that he came to destroy the works of the devil. So young men, we have overcome. We are strong Okay, church, we are young men in this way. We are strong. God's word abides in us. That's how Jesus defeated Satan. He took God's word in. And we have overcome the evil one. James 4 verse 7 says this about the strength that we have. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. This powerful devil, if you resist him, he will run away. He's He'll flee from you. Resist him. He will flee from you. Why? Because John tells us in his letter that he who is in us is greater than the devil, greater than he who is in the world. And we also know this. We read this about our strength in the Lord in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So what? Be strong in the Lord. That's where our strength is. The one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Church, if we're 108 years old even, if we're little babies, <laughs> well, once we know Christ, I should say, we are strong in the Lord and nothing can penetrate us. How, where do we get that strength? Well, Ephesians chapter 6 goes on to talk about the the supremacy and primacy of God's word in our lives, in our hearts. We need to know the truth. We take in his word and, and we pray. And we pray. And in that, we have overcome the evil one. And back in 1 John, we are reminded in a very powerful way. I write to you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. That's what we need to know as young men. As children, we need to know that our sins are forgiven for the sake of Jesus' name. And that we know the Father. And church, as fathers, we need to know him who's from the beginning. And we need to pass that on and guard that truth about who Jesus is. And as young men, church, we are strong. And we have overcome the evil one. These are the truths that we hang on to. I want to close by reading our passage one more time. Remember, 
John hits pause on the letter, leans in, says to these people that he loves, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Church, this is what the church in Ephesus needed to know. And Highland, this is what we need. These are the things that we need to know. These are the things we need to pursue. These are the things we need to anchor into. This is our anchor This is the truth we need in transient times and God has given it to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have not left us to figure things out on our own. We'd be running in all the wrong directions. We'd be pursuing all kinds of useless knowledge. But Lord, let everything that we learn, let us harness it to make much of you. Let us be people in the church who are like the people that John describes here. This is who we are. If we are in Christ, this is us. So help us to lean in to this calling that you've placed on us. Help us not to let anything supersede these things. And thank you for the hope we have in Christ. Thank you that through Jesus, we have come to know you, Father, and we have come to know him. And your spirit works that all out in wondrous ways. And we pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen.